Okay, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Pastor Eli James here, Eurofolk Radio, and today is May 28th. This is Memorial Day weekend in America, uh, and it's Mother's Day in Sweden. So Michael is not able to make the show today. He's, uh, uh, I guess, treating his mother to some uh, Swedish delicacies (laughs) for Mother's Day. So uh, he just tweeted me not too long ago that he won't be able to make it. But anyhow, the, the show that I had planned for today, since it's Memorial Day, is not going to be about war, but it's going to be about how the Nazis viewed the, the protocols. It's how the Nazis viewed the protocols. I'm going to put the link in the chat room again. Okay, and... Uh, I was running late this morning, so uh, it took me a, a few minutes here to get going. And so I'm going to put this in the chat room real quick again. Very good article here. And get this uh, show on the road uh, on Telegram as well. So the the view that the Nazis took of... The protocols was the same view that Henry Ford took, which is namely that the protocols are authentic Jewish, uh, an authentic Jewish document. Of course, the Jews like to deny it totally, but uh, the uh, the point of the article is to show that the the Zionists and the the uh, the people who issued the protocols, namely the Jewish secret societies, basically taught the same thing. And the Zionists, even before the protocols were conceived for the previous, close to a century, the whole of the 19th century, uh, Jewish authors and rabbis and bankers have been saying exactly what the protocols say, right? So that the protocols are nothing but a summary of Zionist thought up to that point in time. And so it goes like this. Let me put the link in the chat room one more time. Okay, now the this is research.calvin.edu, and they pronounce it as German propaganda. But it's not German propaganda. It's a very rational analysis of what the Jews have been stating up until that point in time, so up until the publication of the protocol. So let me just uh, start it here. This is an introduction to the 1938 Nazi edition of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. The statements about Jewry's plans for world domination brought together in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion have had an enormous political impact of an educational nature about Jewry. Through them, thousands and thousands of people have been made aware of the corrupting character of Jewish thought and action. They then reach for other writings or watch their citizens of Jewish faith more carefully and find confirmed the basic points of the protocols. Hardly any other book has so aroused the hatred of Jewry, which attempts to destroy or defame the protocols with all available methods. Okay, just as Henry Ford said, the protocols fit the historical record of the Jews. World Jewry attempted to strike a decisive blow against this highly dangerous, incriminating document, 
before a court, a court in Bern, Bern, Switzerland. The Swiss so-called Israelite Federation and the Jewish Religious Society brought suit in July 1933 against a Swiss bookseller who had sold the protocols. That sounds like what's going on in Florida and all around the country here in America where the Goyim Defense League and White Lives Matter, etc., do flyer drops in various neighborhoods and not in Jewish neighborhoods because the Jews already know this stuff, but in neighborhoods where they don't get the truth about the Jews and the protocols, and the Jews are busy trying to prevent any discussion of Jewish misdeeds, such as the uh, you know, fake Holocaust and all that sort of thing. So they're trying to censor free speech. That's what this is all about, censorship of free speech in Sweden. And a suit was brought again in July 1933, uh, simply against a, a Swiss bookseller, okay, for selling books. Now the, now, the Jews sell all kinds of pornography and all kinds of lies, books telling lies about history, etc. So they can sell anything they want, and nobody files suit against them. But if you publish a book, uh, exposing their activities, then they will bring a suit against you or, you know, they will try to ruin your life, which that's how Jews do business, right? So yeah, so this is an ex- excellent article on the situation as, uh, who's the, well, I guess it's the editor of this uh, copy of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, not giving the name of, a, of an editor or author. So let's continue. The same goal was served by a case world jury brought before an international court in Cairo, the so-called Cairo trial, which like the battle... Now, this just gives you an indication that the Jews are an international force because they have their operatives and their Zionists and their communists in every single nation on the face of the earth. They're not confined to a single country. In fact, they admit they have been a, a nation or a people without a country, a people without national homeland, since they claim they were expelled around uh, you know, 1 AD, all right, or 33 AD, whatever the year was that Titus, the Roman general, you know, burned the uh, temple down and, and pretty much expelled the Jews from there. So they've been claiming they've been pe- a people without a home for the last 2,000 years. But never the Bible says that the Israelites would create many nations and uh, multi, uh, companies of nations, which the Jews have never done. So a, a real simple uh, expose of how the prophecies of the Bible uh, concerning Israel only have us, the true Israelites, the Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, Caucasian Israelites, as the object, the prophetic object, and the Jews fail on every count. But they must maintain this false idea that they are Israel in order to dupe the world into falling in line with their globalist plans. Okay, so the Jews have always been an international force, but a a force without a country of their own until they stole Palestine from the Palestinians. So let's continue. So here they brought suit in Cairo. The so-called Cairo trial, which, like the battle about the protocols of the elders of Zion, resulted in a major defeat for the Jews in their battle against national socialism outside of Germany. Of course, they 
The Jews oppose nationalism anyhow, not just national socialism, but they oppose nationalism because nationalism is the opposite of internationalism. And they want to blot out all nations from the face of the earth and absorb them all in their one world dictatorship, which they are succeeding at at the moment. The trial about the protocols ended before the Bern court on 14 May 1935 after becoming a huge case. Experts were called and Jewish witnesses from around the world testified. Prominent witnesses for the defense, however, were not allowed to testify. Oh, that sounds familiar. Even though the Ernst Zindel trial in Canada, his witnesses were allowed to testify. The court simply disregarded their testimony because the court said truth is no defense. Truth is no defense. The trial, according to the judge, was merely about whether Ernst Zindel had violated the Canadian censorship laws. doesn't matter whether the Holocaust happened or not. He proved in court that the Holocaust was a lie. Even his Jewish witnesses admitted to that. But the court ruled because that's not really what the case was about. The The case was about whether or not Ernst Zindel had violated Canadian law about not about denying the Holocaust, all right? So it didn't matter whether the Holocaust happened or not. There's a law against it, so you better not violate that law, okay? The judge actually said in, in the trial, truth is no defense, okay? Truth is no defense against the, against the Jews. Okay, so uh, the trial was an international sensation. Experts were called and Jewish witnesses from around the world testified. Prominent witnesses for the defense, however, were not allowed to testify. The one-sided, pro-Jewish nature of the trial found clear expression in the verdict. After all the effort, the defendant, Silvio Schnell, had to pay a fine of 20 francs, and fellow defendant Fisher was fined 50 francs for distributing an anti-Jewish book. Such small fines were in contrast to the costs of the trial... 27,000 francs, which after the first trial were charged to the two defendants. This grotesque difference between the absurdly small fines when compared to the importance of the legal issue, but of course truth is no defense, and the size of the court costs charged to the defendants shows the uncertainty of the judge and probably the fact that the judge was not convinced of the falsity of the protocols or that it was immoral literature. So here we have to be very careful to define what exactly is the charge. In in Zindel's case, the charge was violating a Canadian law against denying the Holocaust, right? So that he was found guilty, but they could not prove that the Holocaust actually happened. The same is true in this case, where the actual charge is that what they they were doing was distributing immoral literature. Now, who decides what's immoral? Does a judge decide that? Does the the local school board decide that? Oh, how about what what church rules in Sweden? I mean, in Switzerland. The Catholic church, the Protestant church, the Calvinists? 
What do they consider immoral? Is there anything in God's law that says thou shalt not criticize the Jews? <laughs> or for that matter, thou shalt not criticize Israelites. The irony of all this, ladies and gentlemen, is that Jesus is supposedly a Jew. The Jews make fun of Jesus all the time. They smear his name with all kinds of filth and degradation. And the general non-Christian public can call Jesus all kinds of names they want, but they dare not criticize the Jews for fear of being dragged into a courtroom. Now, isn't it ironic that you can criticize Jesus, but you can't criticize the Jews? Are the Jews somehow holier than Yahshua? Very ironic, folks. Very ironic. But let's continue. The Jews wanted to conduct a propaganda campaign against anti-Judaism at the cost of several anti-Jews, and one particularly aimed at National Socialist Germany. They found a judge who, if perhaps somewhat hesitantly, followed their political desires. He ruled in 1935 that the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, the Theodore Fritsch edition, was immoral literature. Now, even in these days, the Jews were promoting pornography of all the worst kind. They were promoting sexual immorality in Germany. Before this, of course, uh, Hitler and the Nazis put an end to all this sexual immorality and exploitation of children and women and men. They were promoting homosexuality as well in the Weimar Republic, which is totally run by Jew bankers. And degenerate Jews, and many Jews have admitted that. So what's immoral? The exploitation of people, uh, forcing them into sex slavery by creating poverty around them? Or is it a book about the protocols? What's immoral? So anyway, so the actual charge was that the protocols were immoral literature and violated the 1916, quote, law of, on movie theaters and measures against immoral literature, unquote. Now, whether this is a German law or a Swiss law, the author should have carefully stated, but he didn't. Okay, so apparently this is limited to Switzerland. He banned it in Bern, Canton. I think Canton must be like a, a province. We will go into more detail on the Jewish conception of immoral literature later. Here we need only give the grounds for the acquittal after appeal to the Bern Supreme Court on 1st November 1937. Okay, now another important fact here, as uh, Andy uh, has brought out on his shows about the Holocaust, is that even though that this 1935 ruling pronounced by this judge uh, stated that it was immoral literature, the Bern Supreme Court overturned that. So the Zionists prattle on about how, well, that uh, that that literature was pronounced. Uh, what's the term they use? Uh, not immoral. They claim that the the verdict was that it's it's not true literature. It's fake literature. That the protocols are fake. That's what the Jews claim that that trial. Uh, uh, developed their concern. No, it had nothing to do whether the protocols were real or fake. It concerned whether they were immoral or moral. 
So there's a huge difference. Yeah, and yeah, Mr. Kim Smith, Yasha did criticize the Jews. He must have been one of those self-hating Jews, right? He must have been one of those self-hating Jews that uh, Jews are always criticizing themselves. So we see you always have to, with regard to Jewish literature, they always distort the language to make it mean what they want you to believe it means as opposed to what it actually means. So instead of declaring that the protocols are a forgery, which the Jews claim that this ruling did, no, it did no such thing. Nor did the Canadian trial proclaim that Ertz Zindel was guilty of denying the Holocaust or or not proving or proving that it was fake that the Holocaust never happened. The, the judge there did not rule on that particular matter. You have to get to the specifics of the case. The ruling against Ertz Zindel was that he had violated a Canadian, a Canadian law against denying the Holocaust. Case closed. Truth doesn't matter. Now here the the issue is whether the protocols are immoral literature, not as to whether the protocols are authentic, which of course they are. And the balance of this article goes into proving how authentic they really are. As I have stated many times that, in fact, I was hoping to do an article on this, but I think this article will save me the trouble because I have stated many times that there are so many Zionist pronouncements of their own supremacism and their own control of media and politics and economics, etc., even before the protocols were written, before and after the protocols were written, statements by very rich and powerful Jews that they control the world, etc., etc., that the protocols are merely a summary of Zionist writing and thinking on the subject. The protocols are an authentic summary of Zionist thought on this issue. And all of what somebody has to do is take excerpts from Jewish writings to show, hey, this is this is protocol literature here. They're just summarizing what they believe, what they and their plan. It gives us their plan of operation, because that plan was in operation for actually many centuries. They just weren't able to put it into operation until the 19th century. And especially after uh, after Napoleon defeated, uh, won the war, I, I'm sorry, Wellington defeated Napoleon in the War of 1815, that the Jews gained supremacy in Europe and slowly began their banking operations all over again. Okay, so because the Jews have created this mass media campaign against the protocols, and just like they've created this mass media campaign for the Holocaust, anybody who dares to deny either or reject either will be called to account not by the, the law, certainly not here in America, because there is no law against denying the Holocaust. That's why they had to try Ernst Zindel in Canada. That's why he had to be tried in Canada, because there is no such law in America. Okay? So I just noticed in the left side there's an insert that says, the Die Geheimnisse 
der Weisen von Zion, okay, so the, uh, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, in deutsche Sprache, herausgegeben von Gottfried zur Beef, zur Biff, Gottfried von Beef, B-E-E-F. That's the, he's the author of this article. So, it's real obvious to me that the Jewish campaign of propaganda against the Goyim has been ongoing for the last 2,000 years. You know, kill the Goyim. <laughs> All the, kill, kill the best Goyim. I mean, that's Talmudic literature. So, another way of proving the authenticity of the protocols is just, just to quote the Talmud. All you have to do is quote the Talmud to find very, if not identical, statements made in the protocols of the elders of Zion. So are they authentic? Well, of course they are, because they they summarize both the Talmud and Zionist statements and even communist statements throughout history. Okay, so let's continue. So he says that... Uh, the so-called unbiased, uh, let me just back up here to the Supreme Court that overturned the ruling in, in Bern, okay? And he says, here we need only give the grounds for the acquittal after appeal to the Bern Supreme Court on 1 November 1937 to reveal the Jews' political maneuvering. Judge Peter issued a carefully worded but sharp ruling about the decision by the lower court. He ruled that the lower court judge had improperly handled the testimony about the genuineness of the protocols. Since the parties involved selected the experts, the confidence in the testimony was shaken. The so-called unbiased expert loosely, L-O-O-S-L-I, loosely, who used every opportunity to support the Jewish position, was not impartial. He had already written in a polemic, unscientific manner about the authenticity of the protocols, and one could only assume that the lower court judge was unaware of that. He was warned to be more careful about such testimony in the future. Uh, so in other words... Uh, you can't be an unbiased uh, witness if you've already condemned the protocols as being a forgery in previous writings. So apparently the Swiss judge was either unaware of that or he was paid off to ignore it. Okay? Oh yeah, Jews do that kind of thing. Okay. He was warned to be more careful about such testimony in the future. Furthermore, the expert testimony was entirely irrelevant. A possibly forged text was not necessarily immoral literature, and an accurate text could nonetheless be immoral. Let me read that again. A possibly forged text was not necessarily immoral literature. Okay, you can forge any kind of literature and it could be moral or immoral. Again, who determines what's moral and immoral in our society? The Jews do, right? <laughs> okay. And an accurate text could nonetheless be immoral. So if it was a real, if it was an unforged document, that still could be immoral. Well, I mean, what's immoral to the Jews? Uh, having their plans publicized by uh, a Russian 
translator stating exactly what they plan to do to the Goyim in the upcoming years. How could that be immoral? Just to translate something correctly, right? No one denies that the Jews actually are capable of doing these things. No one has ever denied that. They just claim that the protocols are a forgery. Well, again, as many people have pointed out, a forgery means that there's an original, okay? You don't forge some unknown document that nobody ever, or painting that no one ever heard of. If you forge a painting, there is an original. So the original was the one that was cast or written in Basel, Switzerland. I believe the year was 1896. So maybe that's why this uh, case is heard in Switzerland, because the original protocols were actually composed by the World Jewish Congress in Basel, Switzerland, 1896. So, I mean, to me, is uh, it's immoral. The, the, the protocols are immoral to the extent that they promote immoral activities like lying to people, deceiving people, using people, etc., etc. You know, it's, it's, it's exploring the unethical means by which the Jews you know, exploit populations. So it just reveals their immorality, absolutely positively reveals their immorality. So that's why the Jews cannot allow the protocols to gain authenticity in the eyes of the public. Okay, but that's what we're doing here. We're exposing the fact that they are authentic and they are immoral Jewish literature. Okay? So, the nature of the text was determined only by its content and form. So, all you can really judge is what is the nature and the content of the document, the translation of the protocols into German, I guess we're talking about here. So, a possibly forged text was not necessarily immoral. Okay? Period. Whether or not the protocols was a forgery, as maintained by the plaintiffs, was therefore irrelevant. Let me repeat this. Again, the same thing applied to the Air Sindel case. Whether or not the protocols were a forgery, as maintained by the plaintiffs, was therefore irrelevant. It was not being determined whether they were a forgery or authentic. The only thing being determined was whether they were immoral or whether to publish them was immoral. And he states here, von Bief, how do you pronounce double E? Von Bief, Beethoven, yeah, von Bief. Von Bief, whether von Bief had actually uh, done something immoral <laughs> by publishing the document or that uh, the Germans had done something immoral by publishing the document. Okay, so whether or not the protocols was a forgery as maintained by the plaintiffs was therefore irrelevant. That's not what was being decided by the court. The court was only deciding whether or not they were immoral or the publication of it was immoral. The only question was whether the protocols was as claimed in moral literature. The law did not define the term precisely. 
one probably intended literature of no or limited value that met certain criteria contained within the law. Whether the material was distributed in the hope of making a profit was also irrelevant. Even if the Protocols was able to make its readers into opponents of the Jews, it would be going too far to claim that the Protocols encouraged or led to criminal behavior. But the Jews make that claim against white nationalist literature all the time. That white nationalist literature causes people to hate Jews and therefore do harm to the Jews. Well, the Jews publish anti-white literature all the time, even greater amounts of anti-white literature than the reverse. But nobody prosecutes the Jew for their hate literature. If there were, in fact, attacks on Jews in Switzerland, it could not be proven that reading the protocols caused them, nor that reading the protocols was likely to encourage such behavior. The court believed that there were other causes. One could not therefore say that the protocols endangered morality, or even the Jews. The federal court stated that a text could not be banned because it contained material unpleasant for the Jews, unquote. Now, talk about a sensible ruling by the federal Swiss court. Let me repeat this. The federal court stated that a text could not be banned, quote, because it contained material unpleasant for the Jews, unquote. So there was rationality in Switzerland in those days. Can you believe it? Yes, the word plays, uh, the word games played by the Jews are unbelievable. You, you have to look at the fine print, as with any lawyer's case and any document. What is the case actually about, and what do the Jews claim the case is about? Those are always two different things. So let's continue. One may conclude from the acquittal that the task of a court is not to determine whether the protocols is a genuine or a forgery. That we can conclude from the judge's ruling is the task of historical scholarship. Okay. And historical scholarship has proven their authenticity over and over again. World Jewry's political maneuver against National Socialist Germany thereby collapsed. Truth and justice triumph. But if you hear the Jewish versions of these rulings, you'll never realize this because they claim that the original ruling said that the, the document was a forgery, which the judge never said. And so the Jews claimed victory. And then they failed to mention that the federal court overturned the local ruling. So the Jews can claim victory based on a false ruling and inaccurate and incomplete data, which is the Jewish expertise as making statements based on incomplete data. For the Jewish religious society in Bern, however, the decision brought back the question of paying for the witness and expert testimony. To persuade the judge of the lower court to turn his courtroom into a center of Jewish propaganda, they had pledged to cover the costs Okay, now wait a minute. If they pledge to cover the costs, isn't that bribery? <laughs> isn't that bribery? So why would the judge rule that the defendants have to pay the court costs if they had already previously pledged to cover the costs? Remember, their fine was only like 
27 francs and 50 francs, respectively, which is nothing. After the defendants were freed not only from their fines, but also from the court costs, Burns' Jews had to pay themselves for their political insanity of 1933. (laughs) Okay? Well, that's good. That's poetic justice. They did have to cover the court costs, if I'm reading this correctly. So much for the trial that brought the protocols to the attention of the world once again, in part because of Jewish propaganda itself. Its outcome not only reduced the suspicion that the protocols were as a forged and immoral document, but also made clear that the origin of the protocols was not a matter to be determined by a court, but rather by historical scholarship. This is a matter worth great effort, but it must be said that outside of Germany, only a few scholars have the necessary intellectual and physical resources. The majority of scholars are unable to study the matter because for most countries, the Jewish question is raised only rarely because of Jewish power over the press and scholarship. Furthermore, in countries outside Germany, the physical requirements are lacking. Since studying the history of the protocols is a scholarly task of international scope, for which thorough and detailed investigation has to be conducted throughout the world, or at least in Europe and America. And above all, this scholarly work must be conducted in the archives of a country in which Jewry has absolute control, namely Soviet Russia. So it can't be done in Soviet Russia. It really can't be done in England. Uh, Can't be done, well, it can be done in America because we have resources from all over the world here. And if the library hasn't pulled all of the anti-Jewish literature off the bookshelves, which that has happened very often, because I've been talking to people who go to libraries looking for a book, even, let's say, by Phyllis Schlafly, where she wrote a book about the uh, fakeness of the Cold War and how the Soviets, and she, she doesn't talk about the Jewish question ever. She never did. But... Her books have been pulled from the shelves of libraries all over the country because she dares to question the uh, Cold War and what its true nature is, okay? <clears throat> and because uh, she was also a Christian. And above all, their scholarly work must be conducted in the archives of a country in which Jewry has absolute control of Soviet Russia. So all of the, you know, because the Jews controlled and created the Soviet Union, uh, their documents about the protocols will probably admit to guilt of the co- composition. Why Russia? The history and spread of the protocols up to this edition proves why. The oldest reliable evidence of the protocols is contained in the Russian magazine Snamja, published in 1903. In 1905, or at the latest 1906, a text by Georg Butmi titled The Roots of Our Troubles, appeared in St. Petersburg. By 1907, the third edition was titled The Enemies of Humanity, published in St. Petersburg, 1907. Besides Butmi, the text was also published in 1905 by the Russian Sergei Alexandrovich, Nihilus. And that's the copy that most people are familiar with, Sergei Alexandrovich Nihilus as an appendix to the second edition of his book, The Great in the Small, The Antichrist as Coming Political Possibility. (laughs) Wow, that's prophetic. The Great in the Small, The Antichrist as a Coming Political Possibility. 
Further editions of this book appeared in 1911, 1912, and 1917. There is a copy of the 1905 edition at the British Museum in London. I wonder if it's still there. The third printing of Nihilus' 1911 edition was translated into German and published by Colonel Müller von Hansen under the pen name Gottfried Zurbeck. Okay, so that's the... Oh, uh, is that the author here? I'm not sure. Gottfried Zurbeck with his Auf Vorposten publishing firm. The rights were transferred to the Central Verlag, the Central Publishing Company of the NSDAP France Air in Munich in 1929, that, that National Socialist Democratic Party there. Since any reasonable person will grant the impossibility of researching the origin of the protocols in a judified Soviet Russia, we will have to limit ourselves in this introduction to examining the accuracy of the protocols on the basis of evidence provided by the Jews within Germany. We want to choose several of the many individual paragraphs and sections from the protocols for which there is frightening evidence from Jewish literature, particularly from the post-war period, that shows how they have been followed and realized. They differ from the statements in the protocols only in form and in changes in the language from the turn of the century to the post-war period. The unbiased reader will recognize from these citations that Jewry has worked with even greater force in corrupting the German part of European culture than is evidenced in the protocols. During the post-war period, the Jews had unlimited freedom in Germany, and it seemed to them to be the beginning of Jewish domination of the German people such that they displayed openly and plainly their drive for power. Whenever the Jew speaks or acts as a Jew, his statements or acts will be shown to be consistent with the thesis of the protocols. Amen to that. Because all of Jewish, Zionist, and communist literature proves that the protocols are authentic Jewish literature because they have made statements, if not totally identical to statements in the protocols, very, very similar throughout the last 2,000 years of history, especially in the 19th and 20th centuries. Right, and they... Yes, Mr. Smith, they they changed the subject by saying, well, it's a forgery, not a, that uh, that it doesn't really qualify as an authentic document. But the, even using the term forgery means that there is an original. <laughs> There's an original, and the original is authentic. Okay, that's that's the point that this article is making. And we agree with this 100%. Since the betrayal of the German soldiers at the front and the resulting beginning of parliamentary domination is at the opening of the post-war period, we will begin with the section of the protocols titled Universal Suffrage. Quote, To secure this, we must have everybody vote without distinction of classes and qualifications in order to establish an absolute majority, which cannot be gotten from the educated classes alone, unquote. That's protocol number 10. In other words, we have to have stupid people vote. We have to have Democrats vote in order to gain our power. The history of the World War and the post-war period in Germany alone provides an impressive collection of evidence 
such that one can speak of strict adherence to and systemic realization of a carefully thought-out plan. We have to limit ourselves here to a few convincing examples. The overwhelming role played by German Jews in treason and agitation against Germany during the war can be seen in a book by a French journalist titled, that's in quotes, quote, a French journalist, unquote, titled Behind the Scenes of French Journalism, Berlin, 1925. In it, a Jewish puppeteer, the American financial Jew Otto Kahn, reveals this dishonorable and filthy business. And we quote, The Freie Zeitung, that is the free newspaper, was established in Bern, a newspaper of the worst sort. It employed journalists with rather broad consciences, such as the Grelling, the author of Yakuze and similar writings, the Jew, whose editor was a Jew. Rösselmeier, Fernau, a Jew, the editor. Edward Stiegelbauer, author of the novel The Ship of Death, which portrayed the torpedoing and sinking of a huge ship in gruesome detail, uh, discovering bloodthirsty German atrocity. Oh, no, this is our next. This, uh, they were under the direction of the Maison de la Presse in Paris and twisted the facts intentionally, subtly selecting documents and discovering bloodthirsty German atrocities. The Swiss German government was powerless. It should be, not be forgotten that the well-known American banker Otto Kahn, a Jew, contributed $50,000 to the, establish the Freie Zeitung, or the Free Press. That is how Jewry worked against a strong Germany that was determined to resist, in Germany itself, the Jews. Alfred H. Fried, Alfred Einstein, I think he means to say Albert Einstein, it may be Alfred Einstein, Edward Bernstein, Privy Councillor Witting, Witkowski, Wolfson, Siegfried Balder, Magnus Hirschfeld, Dr. Oskar Kohn, Hugo Hasse, Kurt Eisner, among whom Maximilian Hardin Witkowski particularly stands out. Even before the war, they worked hard to bring down the monarchy. Their racial comrade, Max Reinhardt, said, quote, so he's, there's a Jew stating this, If one could trace the important events of this period to their origin, one would have to admit that all the threads led to a single man in Grunwald. So Grunwald has to be the location of Maximilian Hardin, apparently. Whatever the results of the great upheavals of the present may be, later observers will have to conclude that he was their cause, unquote. And this is Maximilian Hardin on 20 October. So, and, and this is the interesting thing about analyzing Jewish literature, folks, Christian Israel. The Jews often admit to these, doing these things because they brag about them. They brag about themselves. And this braggadocio literature published by the Jews is, is everywhere. But, in fact, Andy's book on the Rothschilds, The Synagogue of Satan, is a, a collection of historical documents about the Rothschilds and how they have taken control of the Western world since 1815 often quoting the Jews and, and their proclamations and their successes. 
the book on the Rothschild by Frederick Morton exposes many such quotations. The Jews brag about these things. That's the official biography of the Rothschild family by Frederick Morton. Has several such quotations. So, but if you quote the, if a, a goy, such as Andy or myself, quotes the Jews' statements, we're called anti-Semites, right? So this is the double standard that exists with Jewish literature. Continuing, let me take a sip of coffee here. After the war, and in the midst of Germany's greatest poverty, Hardin celebrated his triumph in an unsurpassable, hate-filled way. Quote, It, Germany, the editor, the word it refers to Germany, may regain its rights only when it has the courageous dignity, even before tramps, to admit its injustice, unquote. And that's from Zukunft, which apparently is a magazine meaning future, the future, 1919. Uh, edition I, maybe that's number one for January, page 328. So here, in the midst of the depravity created by the Jews in the Weimar Republic, the Jews blame the Germans. This is Jewish depravity to the health. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Chutzpah. They call it chutzpah. No worse an infernal monstrosity of Jewish thinking can be found in the protocols. It corresponds to the practical proposals in the conclusion of the London plan to impose war debts on Germany through trusts and later the Dawes plan. That's D-A-W-E-S. The Dawes plan. And we quote, Germany's first task in the consortium, which is the trust, according to the editor, as debtor to its creditors, as the defeated to the victors, is to prove all necessary means for building up Russia, experts, technicians, skilled labor, tools, and finished products, which will help it, along with the industry in northern France and English and American commerce, to recover and that's also published in Zukunft, number 23, 4-3-1922. So first of all, the Germans never conceded defeat. Ger- Germany did not lose the war. Not one shot was fired on German soil. Here again, this Jew distorts history. Actually, Germany made a a peace offer to the Allied powers, which the Allied powers refused. But the war came to an end. Nevertheless, with Germany having not lost the war, in fact, Germany would have won the war by all accounts since not one shot was fired on German soil and the rest of Europe was decimated. Russia backed out early. France backed out. And Britain would have backed out if it weren't for the intervention of Woodrow Wilson's American army. Okay? 
Germany was not defeated. A truce was declared. But when the Jews took over the controls of German government, then that's when the defeat happened. Germany lost not the war, but lost to Jewish intrigue. Let's continue. These facts and evidences give a picture of world's widespread Jewish efforts against Germany's will to resist wherever it was to be found. It was the preliminary work for the Weimar Constitution, <coughs> created by the Jew Hugo Preuss. It followed the protocol's call to establish the absolute power of the majority down to the smallest detail. All right, so democracy, folks. America is not a democracy, it's a republic, which means local rule prevails, not the absolute will of the majority. And our legislators are supposed to represent the local communities, not world Jewry. So so the protocols are worded such that it invokes democracy, not Jewry. However, the, the document does use the word goyim in several places, and only Jews used the word goyim in those days. The importance to the Jews of creating new constitutions that affirm the absolute power of the majority is proven by the surprising fact that nearly all German, quote, Democratic and Republican constitutions have Jewish paternity. The creators of the First Reich constitution were the Jew Gabriel Riesler and Johann Jacobi, or Jacobi. The former was reorganizer of the Democratic Party of Prussia, and spokesman for the international democracy, the latter one of the most prominent attorneys in the German citizens for the, of the Mosaic faith, unquote. They, along with their baptized racial comrade Eduard von Simpson, created the first German Reich constitution. So you can see the Weimar Republic was totally, it was, the constitution was written by Jews, it was implemented by Jews, and it was to impose, quote, universal suffrage, of Jews and and the uneducated. Therefore, the, the Jews and the uneducated would automatically overrule those of, how should I put it, upper-class Germans who knew what was going on. And they did the same thing to the American Constitution with the 14th Amendment. So you see, but even here, nobody perceives the subtle change in language and the subtle change in how electors are determined. Not democratically, because even until recently, the Senate was chosen by, uh, by the electors were chosen by the Senate, not by the, by the people at large. Okay? So you can see, this gradual change in our Constitution has always been manipulated by Jews, just as we see here. The Weimar Republic was created by Jews, and nobody reports this. It's not in any of the history books, except those that are condemned and burned, so to speak, by, by censorship. They don't, the Jews don't have public burnings of literature. They just censor stuff and, and steal books from libraries and never turn, turn them in. So he's saying Edvard von Simpson was a turncoat and a puppet of the Jews. That same revolutionary year, 1848, the Jewish demagogue Adolf Fischhoff 
prepared a representative constitution in Vienna. It demanded complete freedom of the press, which means the unrestrained incitement of public opinion, the abolition of the death penalty, and the absolute majority rule. Well, isn't that the same program of the Democratic Party here in America? When the Democratic Party gained power here in America, it was virtually a, a, a copy of of Karl Marx's Ten, Ten Planks of the Communist Revolution. Okay? And the Democratic Party has followed those Ten Planks of the Constitu- uh, Communist Revolution ever since. Absolute majority rule, so democracy, which is easily swayed by Jewish propaganda, don't you know? It was followed exactly in the Republican Federal Constitution of Germany, Austria, which was the work of the Jew Kelsen, K-E-L-S-E-N. And the Weimar Constitution of the German Republic not only agreed with the demands of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, but was prepared by an exclusively Jewish committee. The Jew Paul Nathan published the following details about the history of this constitution in the newspaper Forwards, which means forward. That is actually the publication of the Israeli state or a newspaper or magazine coming from Israel, Forward. The Jew Paul Nathan published the following details about the history of the constitution in the newspaper Forwards, edited by his racial comrade Stamfer, who himself wrote on 2010-1918, number 289, quote, As socialists, our firm will for Germany is that it should lower its war flag forever without having brought it home the last time in victory, unquote. Well, that didn't happen after World War I because the German army was not defeated. In fact, it was the German army or the remnant of the German army, the German war veterans, who overthrew the Jewish Weimar government. And that, I'm sure, the Jews made them bitterly angry (laughs) against Germany. Can you imagine? They declared victory, and victory was snatched out of their hands by the German war veterans. Quote, Late that fall, Hugo Preuss, who usually did pay visits, surprised me by coming to my home and said, quote, Ebert has asked me to draft the German Reich Constitution. Should I do it? And I instantly replied, quote, naturally, if you are guaranteed a free hand, unquote. An hour later, we were with Theodor Wolf of the Berliner Tageblatt, the Ber- Berlin Daily. Soon we were joined by Witting, Maximilian Harden's brother, and all of us whom Preuss had brought together. So we have a Jewish editorial committee gathering together to write the German Constitution. All of them whom Preuss had brought together were agreed that Preuss, as long as his independence was assured, should agree to Ebert's, Ebert's requests and had to do it. Thus Preuss moved from Jerusalemstrasse to Wilhelmstrasse, Unquote, published in the magazine Forward, 9-10-1925. From Jerusalemstrasse to Wilhelmstrasse, with that being the rule of the Jewish spirit over Germany in the preparation of the Reich Constitution, the law under which all Germans were to live. The 14th Amendment 
changed our constitution accordingly, and now all Americans have to live under Jewish rule of the so-called 14th Amendment. Knowing these facts, one can understand why the Jews were so happy after the successful German Revolution, as they called the November Revolt of 1918. Yeah, and they misnamed the Spanish flu, which is the Rockefeller flu. In the serious Jewish magazine Der Jude, the Jew, we find an article not from the pen of a favorite author, but rather from the editors of this magazine itself. It represented a broad circle of the Jews in Germany and displayed a spirit absolutely identical with the protocols, and he quotes, The German Revolution is the first powerful phase of the beginning of the liquidation of war, unless it's promoted by Jews, and this phase shows the scale and effects of the individual phases of this liquidation will have. So here, this this word liquidation, nobody talked about liquidating nations, only the Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks started using that term liquidation. Liquidation means to exterminate. For us Jews, the concluding phase of the war will be of enormous significance, determining the future perhaps even more than the years of the war itself, unquote. Yeah, the Weimar Republic and the Paris Peace Accords basically blamed Germany for all the war guilt and decimated the German economy. Absolutely decimated the German economy. And Germany was the last country to actually engage in in military conflict. They were they had to by by treaty had to assist the Austrians. And that's why they entered the war. But the war was started by the British and the Russians. The Tsar was inveigled into it, into World War One because he wanted a warm water point in Crimea, in the Black Sea. That would be an outlet into the Atlantic Ocean, a warm water point, because uh, St. Petersburg was not an adequate port, especially in the wintertime. So let's continue. This statement was stressed once again in an unmistakable sentence, quote, we were not deeply involved in the war, unquote. So these Jews who are now writing the German Constitution, were not involved in the war, but they certainly benefited from it. Then followed a genuinely Jewish interpretation of the November Revolt and a prophecy about the post-war period that, as we learned, turned out to be all too true. Quote, We will feel bound to it, that is, the age, the editor, the era that they're creating, and the ideas guiding it, and with the goals for which it is striving. This is all, these are all Jewish ideas. It will set spirit against force, justice against power, peace between the peoples against, against war between the peoples. Yeah, again, hypocrisy, folks. The Jews, all wars are bankers' wars. I'm sure you've heard that expression. And all the bankers are Jews. And we will know that the Jewish ethos and Jewish pathos are at work. So the Jewish ethic and Jewish passion are at work. An age of the breakthrough of the Jewish spirit in the world comes once more. An age in which humanity moves forward to save itself. We can't save ourselves if the Jews are telling us what to do. 
How could we stand aside when other peoples are transforming their lives? Yeah, yeah well, we're such benevolent Jews. We're taking Germany out of its horrible circumstance. Well, they never did that. It took Hitler to accomplish that. We will also experience this age in a positive and affirming way, yeah, by implementing our Talmud, fully aware that we are the children of the prophets, unquote, another lie. So, again, you have to be able to read these sentences from a Jewish spirit, understanding who they are and what they are. They are the synagogue of Satan. And the dissimulation of the rhetoric they put out. You know, say they promote peace. Yeah, yeah, right, but it's a Jewish peace. Or when the communists use the word peace, they mean communist dictatorship. You have to understand what they mean by their words and not how the public interprets these words. The next sentence by the author, hidden behind these general phrases is the claim that after the work before and during the war, the future will be a Jewish age. In the following passage, this is said openly in a way that to us leads back to these theses of the protocols. And he quotes first the document, the collapse of these three powers, Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Russia, in their old form means that Jewish policy is much easier to conduct. The fact that the same war that inaugurated a Jewish national policy recognized worldwide also led to the collapse of the three great powers hostile to the Jews is a unique combination of events that may give one cause to think. Unquote. From the magazine Der Yuda, that is, The Jew, Verse 3, 1918, or maybe page 3, 1918, 19, page 449, and following. In truth, these facts, but also the points of the protocols we have mentioned, agree. And after this and similar statements, yet another point of the protocol is relevant. The policy of hampering the resistance of non-Jews through war and a universal world war. It says, quote, we must be in a position to respond to every act of opposition by war with the neighbors of that country which dares to oppose us. But if those neighbors should also venture to stand collectively against us, then we must offer resistance by universal war, unquote, protocol number eight. So what did the Paris Peace Accords accomplish besides their temporary one-world government, the League of Nations. What did that accomplish? Well, it accomplished Jewish control over politics of all of Europe. Total. And the balkanization of the existing countries, those countries that existed before World War I, the total dictatorship of the Jews in Bolshevik Russia, the creation of Balkanized countries such as Yugoslavia and others, they did the same thing, I think, in Turkey and in Palestinians. They Balkanized Arabia, creating republics that formerly did not exist, or democracies that formerly did not exist, so that when the Jew needed to have a war and needed to pit one country against another, these Balkanized nations were easy prey 
to such conflicts. Do you see the Jewish wheels turning? How everything by the Paris Peace Accords set the stage for total international Jewish power. That's exactly what they accomplished with the so-called Paris Peace Accords. So, continuing. Those three states about whose defeat the Jewish magazine rejoices already had anti-Jewish groups in public life before the war that, quote, resisted the Jews. And after the war, these three countries were the first to suffer and suffer most terribly as hostages of Jewish communism. Before we go into further points from the protocols from the same standpoint to see whether they were realized in post-war Germany, we must consider the accuracy of the statement in Der Jude that the coming age, the years after 1918, would be Jewish. Remember, even the Jews have said the 20th century is a Jewish century. The Jews brag about that. And the 20th century has been the most violent century in world history. Yes, the Jewish century has been the most violent century in world history because all wars are Jewish bankers' wars. The Jew Lucien Wolf, a leader of the English Jews, had unsurpassed insight into the political activities of his racial comrades. With cynical openness, he provided an eloquent, if not exhaustive, insight into the role of the Jews in international politics after the war, particularly those who devised the peace dictate, the Treaty of Versailles. In his essay in the Jüdische Presszentrale in Zurich, the Jewish Central Press of Zurich, Switzerland, he wrote, quote, the great progress of the second decade of the 20th century and its democratic consequences offers the possibility for a significant increase in diplomatic activity on the part of the Jews. During the war, two Jews who followed the example of those of their faith in the 16th and 17th centuries helped to defend against new attacks on Europe's freedom, and on the, meaning Jewish freedom, and the ball- Jewish power, and on the balance of power. Lord Reading and Baron Sonio brought about the Treaty of London in 1915 that dissolved the three-party pact and led to Italy's entrance into the war. Other than these two men, we Jews had no leading diplomatic representatives during the war. However, numerous Jews were quickly employed in the newly established intelligence and propaganda agencies that were part of all the foreign ministries, since they possessed the traditional broad cosmopolitan vision and could speak other languages. All right, folks, this is what makes the Jews so deceptive and full of intrigue. They're working internationally, yet they have the ear of the presidents and leaders of every country they live in and have the means, the economic means, to bribe and even assassinate, if necessary, the leaders of nations. So you see now why the Jews have always been internationalists opposing nationalism, except, of course, Zionism, Jewish nationalism. They do not oppose Jewish nationalism, but they oppose all other countries' forms of nationalism. Again, the Jewish hypocrisy hard at work in these latter days. 
So here is this Jew admitting these things that we Jews gained tremendous political power in virtually every government of Europe as a result of the Treaty of Versailles. The one straw or the one fact that made the Paris Peace Accords fail and the League of Nations fail was the fact that America failed to ratify the Paris Peace Accords and the League of Nations went bust as a result. Okay? Thanks to American diplomacy, the Jews failed at their universal hegemony right after World War I. But the Jews needed to have another war or another global war, as just as stated in the protocols. If we fail on the national front, we must have a universal war. And, of course, that is World War II, using Hitler and Germany as the scapegoat yet again. Yet again, folks. You see, Jewish intrigue against Germany behind the scenes is being admitted by these Jewish authors. Let's continue. A significant but not widely known fact is that none of the warring nations knew how to properly use the Jews. Well, of course they don't. But the Jews always use them. The foreign ministries in London, Paris, and Berlin organized special Jewish departments that concentrated on the analysis of Jewish matters. And, of course, Zionism and the Balfour Declaration resulted in London, right? The history of the competition between those departments with regards to Palestine, which Zionist leaders used so effectively, must still be written. From the beginning, the Zionist leanings of London's foreign office was clear. The head of the new Jewish department, although not a Jew himself, shared the name of a cousin who was a famous diplomat, journalist, and writer, and who was a pioneer of the Zionist idea. The Jewish departments in Paris and Berlin were headed by famous Jewish professors who were, however, lukewarm about Zionism. One was Professor Sylvain Levi, or Levy, the eminent Sanskrit scholar and current president of the Alliance Israelite Universal. That's the Universal Jewish Alliance, secret society. The other professor, M. Sobernheim, also an eminent Orientalist. The British and French departments have been eliminated, but the Jewish department on Wilhelmstrasse is still functioning and remains under the leadership of Professor Sobernheim in recognition of Professor Sylvain Levi's services to the Kai de Orsay. His son, Daniel Levy, was accepted into the distinguished circle of French diplomacy. His, he is currently counsel in Bombay. So you can see, after World War I, after the German government allowed Jews free access to all government departments and all freedom of press in Germany, leading up to World War I, the Jews had no censorship of their activities in Germany at all. Those evil Germans, those evil Germans let the Jews run amok in Germany and their reward was this conspiracy against Germany called World War I. Many Jews in the background at the conference, that is Versailles, where Oscar Strauss represented Taft, 
ephemeral representatives of a future state that hoped for recognition from the great powers. Lithuania was represented by the Kauno attorney, K-O-W-N-O attorney, Rosenbaum, who was an assistant to the foreign minister. The Ukraine delegated two Jews, the Kiev attorney, Arnold Margolin, and Samuel Sarachi, a physician who had a practice on London's Whitechapel Road. We find the signatures of a small group of other outstanding Jews on the final act of the peace conference. Baron Sonino signed the Treaty of Versailles for Italy. Edwin Montague for India. Louis Klotz on behalf of St. Germain for France. August Isaac for Trianon, also of France. For several of these representatives were also signatories to the treaties with Poland, Romania, and Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia was another one of those balkanized countries created by the Versailles Conference. The treaty with Poland was signed by no fewer than three Jews, Senino, Klotz, and Montague, while the other two main treaties were signed by Klotz. Quote, diplomatic activity. This is a very long quotation. I think I should get this whole quotation in before the show ends. Diplomatic activity by Jews after the treaty can be discussed briefly. Europe had a Jewish foreign minister in the person of deceased Walter Rathenau, who was a German, a Jewish German, or a German Jew, (laughs) who had uh, published newspapers in Germany without censorship. Working closely with him was a Jewish ambassador, the very capable Dr. Lujo Hartmann, a historian who represented Austria in Berlin. In London, Mr. Henry Rabinowicz was chancellor of the new and fully recognized Lithuania. Until recently, the outstanding Russian Jewish historian served in the same capacity in the legation of the Ukraine. See, you see the Jews meddling in the affairs of every European country. Every European country after World War One. They had free reign in every European country. They had free reign in Germany. No one was opposing the Jews in Germany before World War I. Yet they claim the German people are so evil. Until recently, the outstanding Russian Jewish historian served in the same capacity in the legation of the Ukraine. Another outstanding historian, Professor Simon Ashkenazi, I wonder if he's Jewish, is the chief of the Polish delegation to the League of Nations in Geneva. Both the Soviet government and the ephemeral military government that fought the Bolshevist usurpation had a number of Jewish diplomats. The most prominent among the Bolshevists was Litvinov, the former ambassador to Great Britain and current assistant to former minister Kamenev, as was his successor in London, Radek, who was also the first Soviet ambassador in Berlin. Salkind and Rothstein served as Soviet ambassadors to Tehran. On the other side, the old Russian attorney and Senator Venaver severed as, or served, it should say served, it says severed, served as foreign minister in the government of General Denikin, while the well-known international jurist Mendels, or Mandelstam represented the same government in Paris. So this article reveals Jewish behind-the-scenes intrigue in Europe after World War I, unlike any historical document I have ever read. You won't get this at your local library, folks. 
you won't get this at your local library. So I will be sure to post this document in the description when this uh, recording gets posted later today on Eurofolk Radio. This document should be shared with every white person to reveal Jewish intrigue against white Europe in those days. Let's continue. In addition to those named above, others who should be mentioned include, among others, Judge Abram Elkus of New York, former ambassador to Constantinople, Mark Hyman of New York, general counsel of the U.S. Shipping Board, Max D. Kiryasov, American consul in Manchuria, and American consuls Samuel Sale and Samuel Sokobin in Kalgan, that is China. Furthermore, there was Jacques George Nunberg, first secretary of the Polish embassy in Bern, and Milan Schwartz, southern Slavish consul in Zurich. There were also several prominent Jews among the delegates to the League of Nations. I'm surprised he doesn't uh, mention Colonel Mandel House, who was Woodrow Wilson's handler, Woodrow Wilson's Jewish handler, direct agent of the Rothschilds in the White House. Continuing with the article. After this overview of the Judification of diplomacy from a professional Jewish pen, there can be no doubt that during this period, quote, Jewish ethos and Jewish pathos were at work and that the leadership of world affairs was almost entirely in the hands of the children of the devil, <laughs> not the prophets. He's quoting, the, the Jews call themselves, well, what prophets? The prophets of hell, from hell, of the synagogue of Satan, the Pharisees? During the post-war period, Germany experienced the realization of another point of the program, quote, the Constitution as a school of party discord, <laughs> all right, unquote. All right, yeah, the Democratic Party is a party of discord. Quote, liberalism replaced self-government by constitutional states, which the Jews saw as their goal. Uh, and the author inserts, or the editor inserts here, this is a misquotation as the text has Gentiles rather than Jews. Okay, let me read it correctly then. Liberalism replaced self-government by the constitutional states, which the Gentiles saw as their goal. Well, of course, it's a Jewish goal, too, to have democracy rather than true republics and, of course, a Christian republic such as America. A constitution, as you well know, is nothing but a school of discords, misunderstandings, quarrels, disagreements, fruitless party agitation, party whims, in a word, a school of everything that serves to destroy the personality of state activity, unquote. That is from protocol number 10. This development could already be seen at the turn of the century. The Jews had a leading role in founding all political parties. Of the parties that they founded or helped to found and controlled down to the smallest detail, we will name only the National Liberal Party, one of whose founders was the Jew Edward Lasker, the Freethinkers Party, one of whose founders was the Jew Ludwig Bamberger, and the Right Center at the National Assembly in Frankfurt, founded and led by the baptized Jew Edvard von Simpson, and finally the Democratic Party in Prussia, which was reorganized by the Königsberg Jew Johann Jacobi. At the same time in Vienna, we find Adolf Fischhoff, 
spiritus rector of the Democratic Party, who for, is that a religious party? (laughs) The Church of the Democratic Party? Who for a time during the Revolution of 1848 had the fate of Vienna in his hands as president of the security service, like our CIA, folks, which was created by Jewish communists from Bolshevik Russia and Jewish Zionists from America and Britain, who prosecuted the Nuremberg trials, the OSS, which prosecuted the Nuremberg trials at the behest of international jury, today is known as the CIA. The Conservative Party of the pre-war period was founded by the Jew Friedrich Julius Stahl, which means steel, who let himself be baptized. (laughs) It was not holy water, folks, otherwise he would have disintegrated. He built the intellectual foundation of, quote, Christian conservative political thought. You see, everything that modern Christians believe about Christianity has been conceived by a Jew. He was also the leader of the conservative faction in the upper house and had a central role as member of the Evangelical Church Council. Would you believe? The strongest centers of Jewry's corrupting power are the two Marxist parties. In the history of the General German Workers' Union, led by the Jew Ferdinand LaSalle, one can note that the Social Democrats and the Communist Party have the same father, Karl Marx Mordecai, whose Jewish nature in both his works and person was accurately categorized or characterized by a Jew in this way, and he quotes, his spirit found a direction that forever overcame all supernatural forces. Do they mean Yahweh? Because he showed, this is Talmudic, this is a Talmudic statement because the Talmud says that the Jews overrule God and Moses. They overrule Yahweh and Moses because he showed how they were bound to to the physical world. Without realizing it himself, he became in his deepest self a Jew in tradition of the prophets, unquote. No, he never left the faith. He was just hired by the Rothschilds to promote a secular agenda, namely communism. And this is from Neue Jüdische Monatschefte, 25-4-1918, the, the New Jewish Monthly. Not only was the theoretician and founder of Marxism a Jew, but Jews are also the best-known Marxist practitioners whose deeds will forever be among the most terrible atrocities in history, we do not need to search for the names, but only refer to an essay by the Jew Georg Hermann in which he celebrates the atrocities as a revelation of Jewish nature, as a Jewish contribution to the history of humanity. He says, quote, and I think we have time for this, quote, I hear Jews say nervously, they hurt us, that is not good, it leads to bad, bad blood, unquote, that is Jews saying amongst themselves. To the contrary, Let us be proud that a Marx, a LaSalle, a Singer, a Rosa Luxemburg, an Eisner, even a Haas, are all Jews. They represent the ancient human soul of our tribe, yeah, the Pharisees, better than any religious renewal is able to do. Let us cheerfully admit that also in Russia, in Hungary, Bela Kuhn, the Jew in Hungary, many of those, whether they are correct or not, I do not dare to say, Many of those who seeking to bring to the oppressed, miserable masses, that's the Goyim, folks, 
to new, better, humane forms of life. That's white nationalism, what they're referring to as the oppressed, miserable masses, to new, better, humane, that is Jewish, forms of life. A Trotsky, a Belakun are Jews. They only prove that human thought is best advanced by the Jews, unquote. Again, from the Neue Jüdische Monatschefte, the Jewish Monthly, New Jewish Monthly, uh, Volume 3, Number 19-20. Georg Hermann, the author of the well-known novel Jetchen Gebert, was fully aware of the significance of his words that he directed to his racial comrades in a Jewish magazine. In another work from the same time directed to the broader public of the German people, his Ranbemerkungen, Berlin, he presented himself as an opponent of nationality. And in a statement directed to the Germans wrote, quote, we must finally learn to put humanity above nationality. Oh, shades of that Jewess in Sweden, right? Barbara Lerner Specter. This has been stated before, folks. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. See you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at this Bible you got here. Oh, that just uses Yahshua and Yahweh. It's, uh, it's, it uses Elohim. Yeah, right. Yeah. Is that okay with you? Yeah. That's correct. Right. Oh, right. Let's see. Let's see if there's something we can order with.